And the book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means second law. Now Moses, he's not giving a new law or a second law to add to the law that they received in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers. But Moses is repeating, he, he's repeating the law that God had given him that he gave to that first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. Now he's repeating the law to the second generation of these Israelites that have come out of Egypt. It's basically a series of sermons that Moses is giving the people before they enter the promised land and before he dies. Whoever your favorite pastor is, maybe you wonder, man, what are the most important sermons? If I could get the five last sermons of Pastor Chuck or Charles Spurgeon or whoever your favorite pastor is, I wonder what they would say. With Moses and with the Apostle Paul, we don't have to wonder. Moses knows this is his last time speaking on this side of eternity, and he's going to give five sermons throughout the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to see later on, it's the specific words that God had given him. So the book of Deuteronomy, as important as it was to Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, it should be important to us as well. With Paul, we have that in 2 Timothy. Paul knows that he's about to go, and he writes down his last words, his last letter before he goes to meet the Lord. The outline, we're borrowing it from Warren Wiersbe. It's a four-part outline. We'll be looking at the historical concerns that Moses has. Moses is looking back to their parents in chapters 1 through 4. And this is Moses' first Bible study here. Then he'll look at the practical concerns. Moses looking within this generation, chapter 5 through 26. Then Moses, he's going to look ahead towards the prophetical concerns. He's going to look ahead, warnings to them once they're in the promised land, chapters 27 through 30. And then finally, Moses, he's looking up to his own personal concerns in chapters 31 through 34. One last thing before we dive in here. Deuteronomy takes place over 37 days. It's 37 days. It's basically five Bible studies that Moses is going to give us. The book of Numbers was an overview of the 38 years in the wilderness. But here we're going to be given 37 days and five sermons. Moses is giving five sermons, not necessarily as a teacher, not necessarily as a historian, but these five sermons are given as a prophet. He's trying to encourage the nation of Israel, looking back at the mistakes of our parents and forefathers, may we do something different here. So we'll go ahead and read verse 1, and I'll just begin looking at it verse by verse. It says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plains opposite Sup, between Paran, Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizabab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. After he had killed Shihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, 
who dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edri. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying... So Moses, he takes the nation of Israel. They're sitting down here at the... What's the right word here? At the bank of the Jordan River. They're able to see the Jordan River and the promised land on the other side of it. They're still in the wilderness, still 40 years of camping out. I don't know how many of you guys like camping. I don't know if you like 40 years of camping, right? 40 years of camping. Two million people have died in their 40 years of camping. And now the only people to survive these 40 years of camping is Moses Caleb and Joshua. All of their parents and grandparents have passed away. All the men of fighting age and above 38 years ago have all passed away. Moses, the speaker here, is 120 years old. He's lived a good life. He's lived a full life. And now he's giving the sermons with the promised land in view, knowing that he's disqualified himself from being able to enter into it. After 40 years of murmuring, after 40 years of manna, after 40 years of sand, he's unable to enter the promised land because of his own disobedience and misrepresenting God at Meribah in Numbers chapter 20. These are also the last few weeks of the life of Moses. So imagine the passion the emotion and the gravity in the heart of Moses as he's teaching and explaining the word of God to this generation of people who had not witnessed the miracles in Egypt or at best were small children during the time of Egypt. We can look forward to just one scripture here, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 and 20. I think we get an idea of just the, the passion and the weight it was for Moses, even though perhaps this young generation didn't understand the weight of what they were about to enter into. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 and 20, Moses says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him. For he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. There is a very special passion that flows out of a man when he's sharing a warning towards younger people that's out of pain and personal life experience. I don't know if you've ever been there. If you've been on the receiving end of it as a young person, you're like, man, what's up with this guy? Why is he crying as he's talking to me? Or perhaps now you're on the elder side of that, right? Where you're the one speaking with passion. You're the one as you're speaking with passion, trying to get the younger man, the younger woman to understand. There's flashbacks in your mind about the pain and difficulty and personal experiences that you've gone through. Moses desires better for this younger generation. And perhaps Moses is thinking about every parent, every grandparent that died because of their lack of faith and unbelief. In verse 2, we see that there, it's an 11-day journey. 
But it took him how many years, verse 3? 40 years. One of the guys last week was joking around. That's what happens with men that don't ask for directions, right? An 11-day journey takes 40 years. Here it tells us in verse 3 that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. Again, I believe we should take the book of Deuteronomy as a very special book. It's pretty amazing that we today have the exact words that God had given to Moses to share with the next generation at the end of his life. Pretty powerful. The Mount Horeb is the name for Mount Sinai throughout the book of Deuteronomy. So as you see Horeb, it's not a a new location, it's just Mount Sinai. Kadesh Barnea is the same location that we saw in Numbers 13 and 14, where the 12 spies went out and they spied on the promised land. They came back with the giant grapes, but 10 of them also came back with a bad report. And their bad report, 10 men kept 2 million people from entering into the promised land. Because their bad report struck the hearts of the Israelites with fear. It says that their hearts melted like wax. It's taken 38 years for the rest of the unbelieving generation that had seen miracles in Egypt to die in the wilderness. And we should take a great warning to this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, we read this often through our journey in Numbers. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. We should not just see Israel's great 38-year detour as a, wow, how dumb were they? We should look at their great detour and look at our own lives and say, Lord, how many years am I on the detour right now? You've told me what I should do. How long has it been since I actually obeyed it? One commentator, Eugene Merrill, he says this, Israel's problem was not the distance of their destination, but the distance of their hearts from God. The journey of faith may be difficult, but it is direct. The journey of unbelief, however, is unending. There's so much truth there. There's difficult seasons in life when we know what we're supposed to do. God's asking us for something. God's saying this is the next step in your journey. And it takes faith to do. Maybe you need to give up something. Maybe you need to give up like Abraham, your only begotten son that you love. But yet, if you obey... It's direct and it's quick to the next step. It's quick in your relationship with the Lord. But to those who constantly go through unbelief and disobedience, it just seems like it's this unending crash that everybody else sees except for yourself. I don't know if you've ever been there. You see someone crashing into someone else in slow motion. You're honking, you're honking, but maybe they're jamming out to music super loud or something like that, right? They're in the parking lot at Navajo or Sedanos, and right, they're just slowly backing up, and they crash. That's what happens to us when we are disobedient and do not have faith in the word of God. May we learn by the example of Israel saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? 
Lord, what's the last command you gave me that I have not been obedient to? Verse 5 tells us that Moses began to explain this law saying. And here Moses takes on the hat of an expositional teacher. He's about to review and explain all that Israel had gone through in the last 38 years and all the miracles that God had done for them. And he's going to dig deep. That word explain literally means to dig deep as if you were mining for something. And then not only do you dig deep, but then you make it distinct and you make it plain. That's what a good Bible teacher should do. It's their job to dig deep and then make it plain and simple for us to take and obey and be obedient to it. Verse 6 and 7 says, The Lord our God spoke to us, spoke to the nation of Israel, In Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, in the mountains and in the lowland, in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Here the Lord God spoke to Israel and told them, hey, you've been at the foot of Mount Sinai for too long. We know that they spent about a year at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the law. We know that Moses, he went up for 40 days fasting, speaking with, it, with God. Bad things were happening. God sent him back downstairs. He deals with the nation of Israel. Then he goes back upstairs another 40 days and 40 nights. But what God is telling Israel is that they were not meant to come out of Egypt only to stay at Mount Sinai. Why did God take them out of the land of Egypt? For what purpose? To go to the promised land. That they would inherit all the land that God had given to them. For us, our promised land is not Miami, right? It's not Fort Lauderdale. It's not North Carolina or Tennessee or anything like that. Our promised land as believers is living in obedience to God. It's receiving all the promises that we see in the New Testament. That's what living in the promised land looks like for us. To have love, faith, hope, joy, having these things, that is living in the promised land. To be able to have a peace that goes beyond all understanding, that's living in the promised land. Continuing to grow and mature and add to our faith and add to our faith and add to our faith that's living in the promised land. The author of Hebrews, we could turn to Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews, he takes Mount Sinai and he likens it to the law of Moses. Telling us, hey, it's important that we stop at the law of Moses, but we need to continue and move on from it. We are not meant to stay in the law forever, but to spend some time there learning from the tutor that is the law, as Galatians tells us. Recognizing that we are sinners in need of a Savior, but then we need to move forward. And the way we move forward is by going to Jesus Christ, the mediator of this new covenant, a covenant of faith. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 and 19 tell us, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, 
and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voices of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them. Again, it's almost humorous. God is there speaking on the mountain, and instead of the whole nation of Israel saying, man, we want to go speak to God, they say the exact opposite. They told Moses, hey, we don't want to hear another word from him. We're, we're scared. We're freaking out. So Moses, you go and talk to him. We will stay here. We jump to verse 22. It says, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Again, our walk in this life is always in a trajectory of getting to know Jesus more and more and more. The law is important. The law is our tutor. But this whole life is all about getting to know Jesus more and more. John Trapp, he tells us, The law is not for men to continue under, but for a time till they be fitted for Jesus Christ. Humble they must be and hammered for a season. Sense of misery goes before the sense of mercy. I love that ending of that. Sense of misery goes before the sense of mercy. We should sense and feel the weight of our sins. Each and every one of us. If you've never had that feeling before, if you've never had the weight of that before, the sense of that before, I encourage you, even in communion tonight, pray and plead with God the Father. Help me sense the weight of my sins. So important for us. If we're going to be grateful for the mercy that God has bestowed upon us, we need to realize what we've been saved from. Then in verse 8, back to Numbers, back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, not Numbers. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Again, the Lord says, you've you've dwelt long enough in this mountain. Now it's time to move forward. Get up and go. Get up and go to the land which I have set before you. Here in the Hebrew, the word see, or perhaps your Bible says behold, it's an imperative. That means do this right now. Do this at once. God is giving them a command through Moses. It's not a suggestion. The whole idea of an imperative is the mood of this word is to influence the behavior of the hearers. So God is telling Moses to command, to stir them up, to get them excited, to go into the land and possess this promised land. What's the command? First, look at the land God has promised and set before you. We have to look at it. You should be reading your Bible so that you can realize What's the promised land for us? Then we need to go into it. We got to start moving in that direction. 
We don't just float that way. It doesn't just happen. We need to go into that direction. And then finally, we need to possess it. We need to go in there and we need to possess it. And in order to possess the promised land, was it just all sitting pretty there waiting for them? Were the cities pre-built waiting for them? Were their buffets just waiting for them? No, they had to go in, go to war, and drive out the evil inhabitants that were already there. And the same is true for us as believers. We need to drive out the evil inhabitants in our lives and in our past. We need to drive them out so that we can go and possess the promised land that God has given to us. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I love when the Lord repeats himself. Earlier this week I was talking to another pastor and we were talking about the book of Hebrews and 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter writes, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Again, look at all the things God has already given to you if you're a believer. He's given us divine power. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's also given us exceedingly great and precious promises. They're there. The promised land is there. It's ready to be possessed. But if we do not have faith and obedience, we will never possess them. It is so sad for us. In our, in our daily reading, we just looked at the life of Samson. Samson had so much promise and promises and blessings. But he did not have the full faith to drive out the evil inhabitants in his heart and to be fully obedient to the Lord. That's why Peter continues in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, he says, but also for this reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To your virtue, add knowledge. To knowledge, add self-control. To self-control, add perseverance. To your perseverance, add godliness. To your godliness, add brotherly kindness. And to your brotherly kindness, add agape love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if 
you do these things, you will never stumble. I was listening to, uh, I think it was on YouTube this week. But it was talking about a plane, that a plane, if the engine shut off while you're in the air, some of our greatest fears, right? But if the engines just shut off, the plane doesn't just drop out of the sky because you're already going 100, 200, 300 miles an hour. So you'll just continue to glide. But if you are not gliding and the power stops, there's no more speed, then yes, you're just going to fall and that's all that's going to be, that's all she wrote of you and your family. All that to say, you need to be moving forward. And the same is true in our walk and relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to have faith in the word of God, and then we need to put action to that faith. What does faith and action look like? Being obedient to God's word. And as you are adding these things, your speed is picking up. And if you're continually seeking to grow, Lord, I want to grow, Lord, I want to grow, Lord, I want to grow, what does it tell us there at the end of verse 10? If you do these things, you will never stumble. There's many believers that sadly their relationship with God, it looks like a roller coaster because they're not continually seeking to grow and grow and add to my faith. How can I add to my faith? How can I add to my faith? Paul, he's at the end of his life, and yet he still asks for the parchments and the scrolls. He's at the end of his life, and he still says, hey, bring me my Bible. There's more for me to read. There's more for me to grow. There are so many great and, promise, great and precious promises out there for us as believers. But if we do not have the faith and obedience to God and his word, we will never possess them. And then we'll be like Samson, just a sad story of what could have been. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and must believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. 1 Samuel chapter 15, 22, Samuel tells us, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. This is God speaking to the first generation outside of, ex, outside of Egypt. He tells them, Now therefore, if indeed, if you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Finally, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 7, Jeremiah says, For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting them, saying, Obey my voice. Obey my voice. Family, are we being obedient to the word of God? Just as a whole generation of Israelites wasted their lives and the potential and the promises that God had for them, many of us as Christians are currently wasting our lives and wasting our potential because of lack of faith in God's word and lack of obedience to God's word. We cannot expect the promises and the blessings of God to come into our lives if we are not obeying his word and obeying his voice. We have that so twisted in our homes and in our lives. We think, hey, I got that Jesus poster up on my wall, right? That counts for something. That counts for at least two blessing points on the Jesus Richter scale, right? 
No, are you obeying his word? Are you obeying his voice? It doesn't matter how many verses you have up, how many quilts you have up, how many lists you have up. What matters is that we're obeying his word and obeying his voice. That's why Jesus tells us in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. We jump back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9. Moses continues to give them this 38-year history. Verse 9, he says, And I spoke to you at that time, saying to you, speaking to the nation of Israel, saying, I am alone and not able to bear you. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are, and bless you, as he has promised. Here we see a little bit of insight into the heart of Moses and just how amazing and selfless he was as a leader. In verse 9, he's telling us, hey, this is a burden. The people have grown to a point that it is too much for me to bear. So does he pray, hey, Lord, cut them in half. Let's get less of them. No, what does he pray in verse 11? He says, May the Lord God of your fathers multiply you a thousand times over. It's that husband and wife that perhaps one of them is drowning with the kids and the other one says, maybe we should have another one, right? That's basically what Moses is saying here. The burden because of their growth did not stop Moses from desiring, Lord, would you multiply these people? Would you bring even more people? Moses, truly showing us what godly leadership looks like, was not thinking what was best for him. He was not thinking about what was most comfortable for himself. He was thinking what is the best for God and what is the best for God's people. Then verse 12 through 15, we don't know if he's speaking about Numbers chapter 11. We'll look at that later. Or if he's speaking about the situation with him and his father-in-law Jethro. Two portions of scripture where Moses called more leaders and more leadership to handle the two million people. Verse 12, he says, How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me, And said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you. Leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. Here we are given the biblical true reason and purpose for godly leadership. What's the purpose? What's the purpose for more leadership within the church? Another question we could ask is, why should a man desire to be in church leadership? Maybe you're saying, man, God just put a burden in my heart to be in church leadership. Why should a man desire to be in church leadership? Is it because he's bored? Is that why he should be in church leadership? Not at all. Is it because he's looking for more networking? He's trying to sell insurance to more people Trying to be a realtor to more people? Nope, that's not why. Is it because he's power hungry? Terrible reason to get into church leadership. 
Perhaps he just enjoys telling people what to do. I'm really good at telling people what to do. Maybe that's why I should be in church leadership. Nope, not that. Perhaps he's looking to climb the Calvary Chapel corporate ladder. Is that a reason to enter into church leadership? Not at all. Perhaps he's been at the church longer than other men, even other men in church leadership. Is that a great reason to want to be in church leadership? Not at all. Final reason why? Because his wife told him he should be in church leadership. No, that's not a good reason to be in church leadership either. What we see from here is that a man should desire to be in church leadership because he sees the burdens, the complaints, and the problems of God's people, and he loves them and desires to help them. That's what we see here. Moses says, I see their burdens, their complaints, and their problems. And Lord, we need more help. We can think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It tells us when Jesus saw the multitudes after ministry and after a long day of ministry, it tells us he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus saw the multitudes, and he didn't tell someone else, hey, I think this ministry is for you. He saw the multitudes, and he didn't say, hey, you know what we could really do at church? No, Jesus, he saw the multitudes, and then he was moved with compassion. Handling the load of caring for God's people and bearing the problems, the burdens, and complaints is far too great for any one man. We have to be careful with this in our own lives. Sometimes we get this Jesus complex where we think if I'm not there for someone, they are surely going to fail and flounder. We need to realize the only person that can save someone else is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Yes, we should love people, we should care for people, but if we're taking all of the load, all of the responsibility, all of the care, all of the burden of someone, because we think we need to be there, be very, very careful. It's been said, delegate or die. And that's what Moses was learning here. If he did not begin to delegate the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, the tens, he would die. Commentator John Maxwell, he says this, The inability of some leaders to delegate work is often a big stumbling block to progress. Many leaders fail to delegate because they have an exaggerated estimate of their own abilities. The no one can do it as well as I can attitude. Unfortunately, they fail to recognize the abilities of their subordinates. Maybe that wasn't for you, but at least that was for me. Uh, Numbers chapter 11 We see here the other side of this. Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. God tells Moses, Gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them. Bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. Then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you, and I will put the same spirit upon them, that they shall bear the burden of the people with you, that you may not bear it yourself alone. Once again, what's the purpose of church leadership? 
to stand together with whoever God has elected as the leader of that church or that people. Not to come against him, not to pull people away from him, but to stand with him, receive of the same spirit, stand together with him in the tabernacle, in the house of the Lord, so that then they can together bear the burden of the people. And what kind of men is God looking for? Wise, understanding, knowledgeable men that are the leaders of their own tribes. These are men that know the word of God. These are men that have the fear of the Lord. These are men that have life experience. And that's the type of leadership that God's looking for. Verse 16, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the stranger who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great, you shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. So here we already saw the type of man that God is looking for. Now what's the type of judgment that these men should be doing and accomplishing? They should judge righteously. How much of our judicial system would just be fixed if the judges were judging righteously, right? They should judge without partiality. Doesn't matter if they're rich, doesn't matter if they're poor, doesn't matter their ethnicity or where they are in the social class system. Judge without partiality. And finally, judge being more concerned with God's presence than with the presence of a man. Judge with more concern, more of the fear of the Lord than with the fear of man. Why does Moses bring these 70 men aboard? Is it so that he can go canoeing down the Nile River? Is it so he can turn the Nile into a lazy river or something like that? No, he brings these 70 men so that he would handle the cases that were too hard for them. Moses still has a heavy burden. Moses still has to deal with the most difficult judgments out of the two million people. I, I hope you're praying for me and praying for all the pastors. It's not easy what we do. We love the Lord. We love you. And some of these heavy-duty decisions, there's a lot of weight. There's a lot of lost hair or gray hair, depending which pastor you look at, right? So continue to pray for us. It's not easy decisions that we're making here. Verse 19, so we departed from Horeb. We went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. Once again, the wilderness here, it's not the forest or the wilderness that we think of here in the U.S. The wilderness, you could think of just desert. You could think of Nevada or Arizona, just desert and wasteland. That's the wilderness in the Middle East and in Israel. As the Lord our God had commanded us, then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said to you, you have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord, you, our God, is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you, do not fear or be discouraged. Moses is telling the nation of Israel, this is the first generation, 
Come on, guys. You were 400 years in slavery to Egypt. We've been two years in this journey through the wilderness, and now we're here. Let's be obedient to God. He's commanded us to go in. He's already given us these mountains. Let's go in and get it. He tells them, don't be concerned with your fear. Don't be concerned with your discouragement. Just stay focused on the word of God. A lot of application there for us, right? Don't be concerned with fear. Don't be concerned with discouragement. Stay focused on the word of God. Verse 22, do these men obey? No, and this is the danger with delayed obedience. It's disobedience. Verse 22, and every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. So they come with an idea. They say, hey, instead of just going in and going to war, let's do some reconnaissance. Let's go in. Let's look at the cities, look at the land, and we'll figure out which area we should go through first. This shows congregational leadership biblically does not have the best track record here. You could look at scripture if you want, right? Verse 23 The plan pleased me well. It pleased Moses. We know back in Numbers, this was right after the people were complaining to Moses, saying that he's power hungry. He's taking power from the people. God, he killed a bunch of them, wiped out a bunch of them. So perhaps Moses is a bit fearful now, saying, hey, I don't want to come with a hard hand, so let's listen to the plan of these people. Verse 23, the plan pleased him. So he took 12 of the men, one from each tribe, and they departed. They went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it's a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. If they would have stopped there, it would have been great, right? But then what do they say? Nevertheless, you would not go up. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents. Once again, let's stay focused on the word of God and on the promises of the word of God. Are his promises good? I think we all think that they're good. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Joy, selfless love, agape love. Man, this is all amazing. Maturity, growing, this is all amazing. Oh, but you have to sacrifice your flesh. You have to crucify yourself. You got to lay down these these wicked works of unrighteousness. When we see the difficulty, that's when we start stepping back. Verse 27, he says, and you complained in your tents. I found this part especially funny. Uh, Just something about camping with people. I think some people forget that your tent is basically just a sheet. And people have full-out conversations saying all types of things in their tents, now realizing everyone can hear what's going on. There has been many youth camps, many douloses, many young adult retreats where you're just like, do they realize everybody can hear what's going on? All right. God, God is saying, you complained in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us. That escalated very quickly, right? Because the Lord hates us, that's why he's brought us, that's why he freed us from slavery. 
That's why he brought us out of the land of Egypt and delivered us to the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Be careful. Sometimes we complain about God after all that he's done for us. And then he says, hey, you need to sacrifice this. You need to give this up. And then all of a sudden we forget about all the freedom that we've had in Christ. All of the sin we've been freed from. And now all of a sudden we're saying, God wants to destroy me and my family. Be careful with that. God is listening to our conversations about him. That's what he's telling us here in verse 27. God is listening to the way we speak about him to our spouses, to our kids, to our family, to our peers. Verse 28, where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you. According to all that he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. As a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses is trying to remind them, have you forgotten about what God did for you in Egypt? Do you forget the ten plagues? Do you forget how he wiped out the whole Egyptian army with one fell swoop with the Red Sea? He's the one that's going to fight for you. Why are you allowing fear and discouragement to take over your hearts? Then in verse 31, we see the love of God. He carried you as a man carries his own son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. God, he carried Israel. He's the one that brought Israel to this place, whether it was on his shoulders, whether it was like a piggyback ride, whether it was the tired kid, whether it was the disobedient kid over the shoulder, right? He carried them to this place. Verse 32, yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents, so to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. This is why in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, it tells us, To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. We need to be careful with our disobedience to God's word, and we need to be careful with our unbelief in God's word. Verse 34, And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. To him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. Two million people disobeyed God. Two million people didn't want to seek him. Two million people did not want to obey him or believe him. And yet Caleb wholly followed the Lord. It's possible for us today to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And Caleb was able to taste of the promised land. Not only him, 
but his daughter, his son-in-law, his grandchildren. May we be those men and women that are wholly following the Lord. Verse 37 and 38, the Lord was also angry with me. Moses is being honest. He was angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Psalm 106, verse 32 tells us, They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them, because he rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips. Be careful with our anger. Be careful speaking rashly on behalf of the Lord. Verse 39 and 40, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Charles Spurgeon, he says, anything, in fact, will serve as an excuse when the heart is bent on compromise. When our heart is bent on compromise, we find the randomest excuses out there. The nation of Israel, their excuse was that their little children would be destroyed by the giants in the land. So all oh, the irony here. God says, those same little ones that you were afraid of and fearful of that they would be destroyed, now he, those small children, they're going to be the ones to enter in and enjoy the promised land. Verse 41, then you answered and said to me, we have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you has girded on his weapon of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. We see here the danger of all of a sudden wanting to obey God because we're realizing the consequences of our decisions. Israel, they didn't want to obey God even though they had a whole laundry list of miracles God had given to them. All of a sudden when they realize the consequences, now they're saying, yeah, we'll go up, we'll go fight, we'll go do whatever it takes. Be very careful with this. Be very careful. All of a sudden wanting to obey God simply because you're tasting of the consequences of your decisions, thinking that it's just going to magically go away. Verse 42, and the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you should be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen. But rebelled. They add rebellion on top of their rebellion. You rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. We get a word picture here. Have you ever seen someone running away from a beehive? Or you see someone fighting a spider web outside the window. Have you ever seen someone fight a spider web outside the window? That's what God is saying here. This nation of Israel, he wanted to do so much with them. They disobey God and they rebel God. Now they're running away from the Amorites like if it was a bee's nest. Verse 45 and 46. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent here. Two last things, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians and have 
communion. We have to be careful that we are making decisions based on faith and not based on presumption. Presumption leaves you running away as if bees were chasing you. Presumption, like in the book of Acts, is this group of men that they think that they were ghostbusters and they were going to send demons away. And it said the demons beat them up, take their clothes off, and they're running out of the room naked and beat up. Presumption leads to difficulties in life, finding out and realizing the Lord your God was not with you in this decision. What does faith look like? Faith is so simple. In Hebrews chapter 11, we don't see any man or woman in Hebrews 11 questioning what God had told them to do. Every person in Hebrews 11 knew exactly what God had called them to do, and they just simply had to obey it. If God is calling you to do something, more often than not, it's going to be simple steps of obedience that continue to grow and grow and grow and grow. God did not call David from never fighting to fight Goliath. He had him fight the lion. He had him fight the bear. Then he had him fight Goliath one day. But when we act in presumption, we make these crazy plans, thinking that walking a life of faith is doing crazy things and then blaming God for it. In spite of any biblical reason, we blame God. We say, God's telling me to do this. God's telling me to do this. And then when it all comes crashing down, we magically forget and just stay quiet about it. Be careful that you're not living a life of presumption instead of a life of faith. The just shall live by faith. So so what is that small task that God has given you to obey and instead you're trying to serve him by bigger and bigger sacrifices? We, We already read that in 1 Samuel. He doesn't care about the size of the sacrifice. He cares about obedience in our heart. So what are those acts of obedience that God is calling you to do? Finally, why is Moses telling this to this nation of Israel, this second generation? He's showing them through these 46 verses, hey, there's always two options in life. Obey God or disobey God. Those are always the two options in life. Your parents, they disobeyed God and we already tasted of what that looked like. Why don't we try obeying God and let's see what happens. That's what Moses is telling them. You have spent, your parents spent 40 years in the wilderness tasting of disobedience to God. Let's try something new here. Let's walk by faith and let's obey him. And each of us, if we're saved, we've tasted of a life of disobedience in God. And yet sometimes we forget. And we, sometimes we say, you know what? I'm just going to push that to the side. I know God is asking me to sacrifice this or give this up, but instead I'm just going to push that to the side and I'm going to do this big sacrifice for God. May we be those who walk by faith. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Worship team, you guys can come up. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And in this time of communion, let's take time to consider the obedience of Jesus Christ. Just how much he obeyed his Father in heaven, even though it was not comfortable, even though it was humiliating, even though it was difficult, just how much obedience Jesus Christ gave to God the Father. And as we look at his great sacrifice and great obedience, let's look at our lives. How are we doing in the obedience department? How are we doing in the faith department? Perhaps we have to, before communion, say, Lord, forgive me, I'm being disobedient. Once again, Lord, forgive me, your sacrifice, your death on the cross, your blood that has been shed, and yet, Lord, I'm worshiping other idols. There's other things I'm not willing to let go of. So we'll go ahead and pray. We'll have worship. The pastors will hand out the communion elements. After you pray and when you're ready, you can take of the bread and then take of the cup. Lord, we just thank you so much for tonight. And Jesus, we're just blown away once again at your sacrifice, Lord. Lord, help us. If we've never felt or sensed the weight of our sins, Lord, we pray even now in this time of communion, Lord, that we would realize and understand just the wages of our sins, God. Lord, the the separation that we deserve from you for all of eternity, God. And yet how you died for us, how you loved us while we were still sinners, how you died for us. Lord, how you were beaten and bruised for my transgressions, Lord. Lord, help us to understand that in a deeper way tonight, Lord, or just to be reminded of that this evening, Lord. Lord, again, we thank you for your sacrifice. God, we thank you for your love. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.